Welcome to the Athletics Prospects to Pros podcast. I'm Chris Burke, joined by Dane Brugler, our uh, special guest this week, Lance Zerline from uh, NFL.com. We'll get to him in a second. Really excited to have him on. And uh, congratulations to all of you for almost making it through the draft season. We've got a couple days left until round one gets going. Not entirely sure what round one is going to look like after the NFL's uh, mock draft that their practice run was a little clunky on uh, Monday, it sounded like. But we'll see how it all goes down. should be a lot of fun. Dane, we're there. We're, well, we're almost there. <laughs> how are you feeling? Just, you, just you about. still doing all right? Yeah, um, you know, it's this has been the most anticipated draft we've had just with everything going on, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, there's obviously a little bit of a potential for something to go wrong with all everyone remote, but uh, hopefully that's not the case. Uh, hopefully it, you know, everything comes off without a hitch. And I think after we're, you know, Joe Burrow goes one, Chase Young goes two, I think we'll get used to everything going on and we'll just be focused on the draft and anticipating, okay, what's going to happen at three instead of focusing on just every, how everything's different. So, um, but I'm really excited that Lance is on with us today. It's, Lance does uh, you know, as much work as anybody when it comes to watching these guys on film writing them up. So perfect guy to talk to as we kind of a primer as we head into draft weekend. Yeah. Between the two of you guys, uh, what are we, we're at like a thousand draft profiles <laughs> written, something like that. No, <laughs> Just, no uh, stone unturned. It's a lot. Got to get the big board tracker up there to see who, uh, who came away with the <laughs> win this year. Uh, so Lance, we've talked to, uh, first of all, welcome into the show. You can get him at Lance Zerline at Z I E r l e i n on twitter we talked to dane uh before about you know just sort of his process and what goes into putting his uh draft guide together which i'll plug one more time here you can still get to the athletic.com uh get the subscription and we're still running the 90-day trial pick up dane's draft guide the beast uh, you want you'll want that for this weekend but lance just i'm wondering if you could just take us through real quick sort of your process because uh you're you know you're doing whatever it is 400 500 of these profiles per year with the grades and the draft tracker and everything um just how long does this take you in a given year and this year throw you off course at all yeah it's it doesn't change anything for me um I've still, you know, I've still got to have all of the combine guys written up by the time the combine rolls around. Rolls around. So that's going to be 336, 337 players written up by the combine. Um, I'm still responsible for writing up the top underclassmen. I have 500 to do total draft profiles per year. The only thing that, that changed my and altered my process was that without pro days, the guys who popped from an athletic standpoint, the explosive leapers, the fast players, the guys who had these monster workouts, who oftentimes, as Dane can tell you, they get selected inside the first, um, you know, by the sixth or seventh round. There are guys who can flash from – an athletic standpoint and teams will say, you know what, let's draft them. We don't want them to hit the board as a free agent where we could lose them. And so those guys who flash with the workouts, I didn't get that this year. So I'm, I'm having to try to work as hard as I can to track down the athletes and the players who are most likely to be the high end priority free agents. And that's not easy because there really isn't shared information between teams like there was in the past where a lot of times you know, front office and, and, and personnel guys, would, they share information, just general information um, on the road. We, we didn't have that this year. So I think that part's tougher for me is finding the back-end guys who could sneak into the draft. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And that's something that as I was finishing the draft guide, it's 
you know, I usually try to get all the pro day information in there. Uh, and this year without having that, yeah, we didn't have the testers because uh, usually we have about 35 ish non combine guys get drafted. And most of those guys are guys that really popped with the, how they tested and during the pro day circuit. And we just, we don't have that this year. We had a, a week, you know, into being a March where there were a few guys. Uh, who who tested really well and that'll that'll matter and meanwhile talking to teams you know their inbox is full with thousands of highlight videos from workouts and guys running a 40 yard dash and it's just it's tough for you know and teams are telling the player all right yeah thanks for sending it to us and you know we'll look at it but truth is they can't get to all these clips and all these videos and so it's just it's tough for the non-combine guys this year and it'll be interesting to see how many non-combine guys get drafted like i said usually around 35 this year probably closer to single digits and you know i think you know kevin dotson from louisiana and uh, you know, demarcus ac for the corner from missouri he, there's a few fifth round grades on him uh, throughout the league so we'll see a few of those guys but it's not going to be like before yeah and as we've sort of talked about a little bit too the the post-draft setup will be interesting with the undrafted free agents because there's usually a pretty quick wave of those guys latching out of teams. I'm curious to see if that drags on a little longer. If um, it, you know, it takes it takes teams a little, just a little more time to figure out who they want to bring in, or if they even add as many guys right now, or if they just wait till later when they can get a little more access to to players and know what the schedule is going to be. So lots to watch at the end of the draft too. But uh, Dane, you mentioned. You know, Burrow, Young, this is sort of where we've been starting a lot of these conversations at that number three pick. And now we're two days out. I guess, Lance, I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. You know, do you have any – is that the pivot point for you in the in the top five? Or do you think, you know, even that holds the form that Detroit's just going to stay put and pick? Or maybe Washington makes a trade. Like, where's the – where's where is this really going to begin for us in round one? I think it's three, and I don't think they have a choice – I think Detroit would love to trade out, pick up additional picks, and still add a very good defensive player. Um, but I don't see seven trading up. I don't see the Dolphins trading up. I don't think number six, the Chargers, are going to trade up. They needed Tua to become a big factor. And the problem is, without teams able to get their hands on Tua medically with their own doctors and their own equipment and everything that they need – I just think the likelihood of someone trading up for Tua has has just dissipated. And if that's the case, you really don't have a trade-up spot. There's really no one that you're trading up for. There may be players that you really like, but I think teams are going to sit tight. And so if Tua had – if he had a clean bill of health, if this injury had happened a month earlier or two months earlier, we might be talking about Tua is the third pick – of the draft or maybe two as a second pick of the draft and you know and and somebody would have moved to three and then flip-flop with two something like that as it stands now I don't see anyone moving up to three so I think the Lions will lock in on Derek Brown or Jeffrey Akuda. I think those are the two uh, players that they are looking at and once they make that decision then we can get on with the uh, with the rest of the draft. And so I think three is going to be locked in. It's, it's a matter of who they take. Now, if it's Derek Brown, I, I don't know, Dane. I think that becomes really interesting. If Jeffrey Okuda doesn't go three, I don't think he goes four. I don't. He's not going five. And so then you have a situation where you could have Isaiah Simmons and Okuda falling back into uh, a spot where teams could say, look, we, we just can't pass up on these kind of athletes. 
one well, plus we're going to get more trade action. You know, we know Atlanta is they need a corner and they're looking they're examining all scenarios to go up and get a CJ Henderson or uh maybe even an AJ Terrell with as hot as his name has been. But if Okuda, yeah, in that scenario if Okuda were to fall out of the top 6, uh, then yeah, you're calling Carolina, you're calling Arizona uh, to possibly possibly try to talk trade, and even if you're Arizona, you need a starting corner opposite Patrick Peterson, so it might even be tough to trade away uh, from that pick. But no, I, I think you're right. It's just with the two a conversation, it's just tough uh, to see a trade, even though the Lions probably are not going. I mean, they they're not going to give away that pick, but they're not going to hold up a team for. Uh, first round pick it's 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 going to be a relatively cheap trade but I just I agree I don't think we're going to see it especially without these 30 visits to the team facilities uh, without having uh, you know, two of being able to come to the facility and you, have, you can be able to work on them there with your medical staff your training staff the PT staff um, and everything that that entails with uh, X's and O's wise meeting your coaches and everything but uh, okay, so that's the million dollar question. Then where, where does Tua go? Do you think he falls out of the top six? And I know it's an impossible question because we just don't know the medicals and what how each team is going to digest those. But if you know feet to the fire, do you think Tua falls out of the top six picks, or does Miami or the Chargers pull the trigger there? I think it, it will be hard for the Chargers not to because that is a team, and, and more importantly, that's an organization that has no buzz in. In LA, I mean, city of stars, and they've got no stars. They've got no energy or, or energized fan base. They had it was a, it was a free pass for visiting fans to go in and make the most noise. And we know they're going to be going into a new stadium. We know that Philip Rivers is gone, but we also know they have a couple of good wide receivers to choose from. You have solid talent on defense, good talent on defense, and the ability to add. Tua, if he were at number six, it's an instant ticket seller. Even with Tyrod Taylor as a bridge quarterback, Tua would sell tickets. Tua would energize a fan base. Money Smith brought this up to me multiple times. Tua would really energize the Polynesian fan base that is so heavy in, in Los Angeles. It would be a massive opportunity to sell tickets, maybe pull some Raider fans over who maybe feel jilted by the Raiders leaving to Las Vegas. Um from a financial standpoint, it would make a ton of sense for the Chargers to pull the trigger on Tua. The question is, does the money aspect trump your concerns over not having your own medical staff put the time and work in on Tua? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. And it's it just makes it tough. Uh, and do you think it's as simple as the Chargers would take the quarterback that the Dolphins don't at five? I mean, do you think if, say, Tua goes five, do you think the Chargers are in on – Herbert in that scenario? No, that's a that's a question I can't answer because they also need tackle. And right. this is a very good tackle draft, uh, especially at the top end. So, you know, obviously I think Miami's in play with tackle. I think the Chargers could be in play with tackle. We know both those teams need quarterbacks, but I don't want to I don't want to just knock tackle out of the mix because I think that's a possibility. I think you could see Tampa Bay try to jump up inside of the top 11, really inside the top 10, so that they get their hands on a tackle as well. So uh, for me, if the Chargers don't have a big grade on Herbert, and if they're not in love with Tua because of the medicals, any concerns about the medicals, I just sit down and draft, I don't care, Isaiah, Isaiah Simmons, 
Jeffrey Akuda, Derek Brown. I, there's a lot of really good players and guys that, frankly, I have rated much higher than Justin Herbert. And then when you take a look at Tua's injuries and you start considering, okay, what's your grade? On? My grade for Tua, for example, is a is a six seven, which is a chance to be a very good uh, starter very quickly in the NFL. The problem is with his injuries right now, you got to downgrade him a little bit unless you feel confident that you saw enough of the combine. And I doubt that was the case. So let's, uh, I wanted to hit on a couple of things you guys touched on there. Um, first off, just with the, the Lions, since I can speak a little bit to that, I think everyone, uh, around here in Michigan was the fan base was sort of hoping to be, you know, Miami would give up five and 18, five and 26. And then everyone sort of settled on, all right, if they get five and 39. And I've been trying to warn people that I think if Miami says you can have five and 70, which would be a high third rounder, Detroit probably takes that and is happy with it uh still gets their shot at okuda or Derek brown um obviously they'd like to aim a little higher but i think if they get to if they get an extra pick in the first two days i think they'd uh they'd definitely take that but um you know you dane you brought up the uh, idea of atlanta maybe moving up um and just one more quick thing on the lions you know bob quinn said uh last week he did a conference call with the media and talked about you know like you don't want to trade so far that you know, if you're picking at three, you don't want to trade so far that you're falling out of your top tier of guys. You know, you don't want to go from tier one to tier two. And he didn't really set a limit on where that second tier of guys would be. So I'm just curious as we're talking about teams trading back, you know, Atlanta coming up and looking at maybe even six or seven or nine or something. Is there a a sort of cutoff point for you where you say, all right, once you get past Derek Brown or Tristan Wirfs from whoever it is that's when you get into the second tier of guys and you have to kind of approach that group differently than you would those guys right at the top yeah I think that it's it's tough and for each team it's going to be different how they're going to view these uh, these trade opportunities and who's going to be there who's going to be left and I I I, I, I what Lance said about the Bucks is really interesting because I, I think that they know they have a window and so where is a team going to feel comfortable? Because they have to go back to 14. So where is a team going to feel comfortable trading back that far? And is it going to cost them more to go up into the top 10? How's that going to play out? The Falcons are trying to trade up uh, into the top 10 possibly to get that corner that they want. Uh, how is that going to play out? Uh, the, the Broncos have their eye on one of these receivers if they want to trade up to maybe 10. So, I, you know, it, we're going to see some trade action, I think. And that's... That's, that's what the talk has been this week because that's what teams are doing. They're laying the groundwork for these trades uh, that could potentially happen if the right players are on the board. So, I, you know, I, I think that it's it, it makes it really interesting to see, uh, you know, who's going to be there, who's not. Um, I, Lance, is there a name maybe in the top 15 that could surprise people as maybe going earlier than uh, some people might expect? Uh, maybe Justin Jefferson. Okay. I would say Justin Jefferson could be one of those guys. That might surprise some people. I think other than that, you could see an early reach on your fifth tackle. Uh, maybe not inside the top 15. That's a little bit trickier. Uh, but that's, uh, to me, the the real – so if there's a trade-back partner, it's going to be because the team trading back can get a receiver. Because we know that receiver – the sweet spot for receivers considered to be 12, 12 through 15. And – I think the real surprise could be that Ruggs is a top wide receiver off the board. I think that might be the surprise uh, and that Jerry Judy could fall all the way to maybe the fourth wide receiver off the board. 
<laughs> that that would be that'd be fascinating, uh, especially with because you're right. I, you look at twelve with the Raiders, uh, you know, thirteen with the Niners. They might take a receiver at that point. Uh, Denver at fifteen. And then you've got a few other teams that might be willing to be aggressive. You look at the Eagles uh, at 21, the Vikings at 22. Uh, some of these teams might be willing to be aggressive for the right receiver, but it makes it tough because the value argument, because this, you know, uh, this receiver class is so deep. So is it worth trading up for a receiver when you know how deep this receiver class is? And if you hit on one of those guys, second, third, even fourth, fifth, uh, you know, it's it, uh, the value is going to uh, be something that you can't really replicate at other positions. I think what's going to happen is everyone's going to say it's a deep receiver draft, and then everyone's going to panic and say, but we want the best. Like, we right. want the best of a deep receiver class. So I think it's easy to say, this is a really deep class. You can get this and you can get that. But there are going to be teams, and, and I'll throw a team out there for right now. The New Orleans Saints, they went after Traquan Smith, you know, a few years ago, and in in, in they thought they had good value, and he's not a bad wide receiver, but they're really, truly looking for a guy that can burn it down the field, a true Z. And where they are, they might not – okay, they might be able to get it with like a Jalen Rager, for example, but what if they wanted to get their hands on rugs? Well, if there was a team that is in a, an absolute win-now mode, it's the Saints with, with Drew Brees – where he is in his career. So if there's going to be a team that's aggressive to move up, what about the Saints who say, look, we know it's going to be expensive to move up from where we are up into, you know, a top 13 position, a top 13 spot potentially. But would the Raiders be willing to move from 12? What if the Raiders had, let's say they wanted CJ Henderson. That's just, you know, kind of a guess. And let's say they did believe that this is a deep draft. What if the Raiders moved all the way back to the Saints pick and the Saints moved up and got their hands on rugs because they felt like he'd be the perfect complement to uh, Mike Thomas? Well, I could see something like that happening. If a team moves up in the draft, I think they will move up for Henry Ruggs. That's interesting. And yeah, I could see a few teams. Uh, I think the Patriots would possibly look at that. Uh, you know, I think Peter King mentioned the Chiefs as a possible team uh, that could be aggressive and move up for a Ruggs and that speed, depending on where uh, Ruggs would fall. Switching gears a little bit to offensive tackle. Uh, I mean, you're, I, I, you know, one of the best voices, at least, you know, on our side, outside of the, the teams when it comes to offensive line play and, uh, you know, people I've been very outspoken about, uh, my love for Jedrick Wills. I know you, you love him a lot too. The question, big question is he's been a right tackle only his entire life. He's never played left tackle. So I want to get from your standpoint, how do you think that would affect teams decision making when it comes to projecting him to being a left tackle? Because then that's one thing with, you know, we talk so much about the pro days and the 30 visits. But we haven't, you know, teams aren't able to send their offensive line coaches to Tuscaloosa to work out Jedrick Wills one on one to line him up in a left tackle stance and try to see how he moves. Uh, so that's something that's missing from the evaluation. How do you think teams are looking at Will? I know they like the talent, but how do you think they look at him in terms of projecting him as a possible left tackle? Now you make a great point, and you know my dad would he loved as a as a former NFL O line coach. He loved getting to pro days and actually getting hands on. You know, hands on. He wants to check their core strength. Um, you want to you want to check guys to see if they can play left and right because it's not it's not a given uh, that a player will be able to make the same movements from one side that he makes on the other. I know people like to act like it's a video game and it's not a problem, 
but there are guys who really do struggle. My dad had one with Max Starks. Max was Max could handle himself on the left side, and he was a big lumbering guy. But he could handle himself on the left side, which would run contrary to what the you know uh, what the common theory would be that a less athletic guy should be on the right side. He just couldn't handle it the same way. He wasn't his body wasn't in tune to pass sets on the right side. So there is a concern with Jedrick Wills without having to you know take a look at that. Now what I can see is his redirection back inside, the ability to to kind of catch those inside counters. It's very smooth, uh, but that's not the same as a pass set from the other side. I know Alabama. Some people I talked to at Alabama think that he can do it. They didn't think it was a problem and that he was on the right side because Tua was left-handed, and that was his blind side. So I think that's worth considering as well. I just think Wills is clearly has the best tape. He's the best combo of run blocker and pass protector. He has good feet, and he has a nasty demeanor. I can take him versus every other of the, of the top four tackles, and he's going to beat them in a category that is a substantial category from a t- from a, a toughness and nasty standpoint he and the ability to drive block he's going to beat Worfs from an athletic standpoint he's going to beat Andrew Thomas from a from a consistency standpoint he's and, and really frankly I think as a drive blocker and a cons- and and a little bit more consistent run blocker and from hand you know hand placement and technique he's going to beat Becton the problem Wills is going to have I think is that Certain teams are going to have a concern with some with some football character issues, and that's kind of come to my attention over the last couple of weeks that there's going to be an issue with with Wills. I've talked to teams who really like Wills; they like the interview, they love the tape, and they're they don't have a problem with it. But those teams also didn't have uh, a pick inside the top ten, and so what I'm going to be curious about is how Wills was viewed at Alabama and whether or not that will spill over to what teams do in terms of his draft selection. But to me, he's the clear-cut number one tackle. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think some of those – you know, he's been – he was a basketball first guy his entire life. And that – I think that uh, was something that uh, I heard was just making sure he's 100% into football. And you see it on the, on the film. I mean, you mentioned his nasty demeanor. You see that, especially in the run game. He's a masher. Uh, but the flexible hips, uh, I think you, you look at his length, uh, Andrew Thomas has his, uh, arms are two inches longer, yet they have the same exact wingspan. And I think that speaks to, you know, his broad shoulders, obviously, uh, and his ability to, he doesn't get beat very often, uh, to the edge, but then also his movements inside to, uh, counter, uh, those counters that, uh, rushers are going to throw at him. So, I agree. And I think the big question will be just left side, right side, and teams are going to have different opinions on that, which really makes things interesting. But you do make a very good point, though, because if a team like Cleveland, if he's on the board, they've got to be certain that he can play left tackle because of their addition uh, of uh, Conklin to the right side. He's not a left tackle. So you have to be certain if you're the Cleveland Browns that that – he is going to translate, or you better have another plan for Conklin. Will's actually talked at the Combine about the challenge of switching over to the left side and said it was mainly for him just muscle memory. You know, you got to change the way your feet work. You got to change which hand you're you're punching with when you move your feet. Like all these little things that he's done forever on the right side, and you just got to figure out some way to flip it over. Um, And he said he was sort of going through that process because he knew teams were going to want him to play on that left side, but it's, it's something that he won't 
have done really until he gets into uh, camp or whenever we get started up here again. Um, you know, Dane, you've got seven uh, offensive tackles looking back at your draft guide in the top 30. Um, you know, Lance, I know you're just talking up Wills and Becton and probably have those Thomas Wirfs, um, those four up high. You've got Josh Jones and uh, you got several guys here with pretty good grades. Josh Jones, Isaiah Wilson, Austin Jackson, Ezra Cleveland. I mean, what's the – if we see a little run on these guys early, see – those first three, four guys go in the top, whatever it is, top 12, top 15. Uh, are we in for another run at the start of day two, uh, late in round one? Like, where do you think this second wave of offensive tackle is going to start coming off the board? The second wave could start as early as the late teens. The second run is going to be in the first round. And you, you nailed it with in terms of the way you described it. There is a first wave, which is a big four. And then there's a second wave, which the second wave is going to be Isaiah Wilson. I think it's going to be Austin Jackson. And I think there's a chance that it's Ezra Cleveland as well. There's also an outside shot that it's – I shouldn't even say outside shot. There's a chance also that it's um, uh, Josh Jones. Those are the ne- That's the next wave. That's the second wave of the four. Now, one of those guys is going to get squeezed out of the first round. I think for sure it's possible that two of them get squeezed out of the the first round. But I think when it's said and done, we're going to have a minimum of six uh, tackles and and Cesar Ruiz in the first also. So I think we're going to have seven offensive linemen at least with a with with a shot at getting eight offensive linemen. So the second wave is going to take place in the first round, and it could start – uh, I'd say on the safe side, let's go from pick number, uh, I don't, just, just to make it a, a, a clean number from pick number 20 all the way to the back end of the first. Yeah. And I think that there's a good chance we could see it even a little bit earlier if, uh, if we see a team like the Browns, uh, trade back because that, that's option A for them. They would love to trade back, pick up another day two pick and, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20. Uh, you know, they had their eyes on Ezra Cleveland. They've done a lot of work on him and there are several teams, uh, that have looked at him. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's a good chance we see eight tackles in the top 40 picks, uh, good chance that one or two of them get squeezed out, like you said, but they're not going to last very long, uh, once we get to day two. And there's, there's so many differing opinions on that second wave in terms of the order they should be drafted. You look at a guy like, like Josh Jones, uh, you know, he has first round grades, but, not everyone's on board with that. Uh, and so that'll, that'll definitely be interesting. Um, I, I want to get kind of switching gears here. I, I, I want to get, talk to you about a player that maybe you've struggled with throughout the process. Maybe, maybe you have loved, cause you've looked at so many of these guys. Maybe you've loved everything about the player, except maybe one thing that's bothered you. Like, for example, for me, it's Antoine Winfield, you know, ball hawk, love the instincts, uh, good speed player, love his play recognition, but it's just tough to get past that five, nine, uh, frame, 30 inch arms. Uh, he made plays on the ball. He had seven picks last year, but he had only one other pass breakup, uh, which is kind of crazy. And so I struggled a little bit with him in terms of value. I think it's easy to peg who he is, but in terms of value and what he's going to do for me on Sundays, I struggled a little bit with that. Who, was there a prospect like that for you who you kind of battled with, whether it's, you know, first round or sixth round, some, someone in there that, uh, kind of bothered you because something about his evaluation was just a little off. Yeah, for me, that's Justin Matabuike. Um, mm. There's some teams that really – so look, I think Matabuike is going to fall in the draft to the third round or, or maybe even below because there are some concerns 
off the field with them. And I'm starting to get that from more and more teams. But let's just talk about the football player for a second. When I watched him, he comes off as a small player on the field, which it's not the end of the world. I've, I've seen plenty of three techniques that are fast, upfield guys. But <clears throat> Matabuike was just not as consistent. Now, you, you could say he started attacking blockers much more ferociously and much more aggressively, and maybe something clicked at the end of the year because he just destroyed uh, Georgia. I mean, he had great tape against Georgia. But he's not as big, he's not as consistent, he's not as instinct as instinctive as I like. And even on tape, I feel like Matabuike feels more like a late second to early third round pick. I don't, I don't feel like he's as good, for example, as Jordan Elliott. I see a translatable NFL talent in Jordan Elliott that I think can play, uh, fairly early and, and have an impact. With Matabuike, I struggle because that Georgia tape is so good. And I know there's so many teams that really like the talent with him. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just, I didn't see it always materialize on tape where I thought that everything had fully clicked. And everything had come together. And that's not unusual. Guys are going to get better in the pros. So you always have to project what they're going to become. But Matabuike was difficult for me because the flashes were really, really exciting. And another guy, you know, for me is Josh Uchi because I, I don't know what to, Josh Uchi has some explosiveness off the edge, but he had no instincts as a linebacker. And he's undersized to be a three-four edge. So what do you do with them? Where do you put them? Like this isn't this isn't an Isaiah Simmons situation where you say, "What well, doesn't matter? He can he can play in a variety of places. He'll have, you know, good football players make plays." This feels more like Jabril Peppers, where you've got to really get things figured out. And even then, you could make an argument that Jabril Peppers was a legitimate safety. You could just play him at safety, and you'd be fine. And you could just figure out if you want to play him down or interchangeable. With um, with Josh Uche, I don't know. Is he a, is he a designated pass rusher? If so, what's the value for a DPR? You want to? Can you play him on first and second down on the edge in an in an odd front defense? I don't think so. I think I think he gets runs at, run at, and I think he has trouble holding up at the point of attack. Is he? Instinctive enough to play linebacker? Absolutely not. Not at this stage of his career. So where, what do you do with a guy with explosive rush talent who you question whether or not he can play on first and second down? What kind of value do you have on, on DPRs? And Chris is our resident uh, Michigan man can definitely uh, attest to that. He, I think he played 51% of Michigan's defensive snaps last year. So, I mean, it, yeah. it, Michigan didn't know what to do with him. And that's, uh, I was actually just talking about this yesterday with uh, Nick Baumgartner, who covers the, the Lions, Michigan, Michigan State up here for us, because uh, I think there was some of that. You know, they had used, uh, Michigan used Jordan Glasgow a ton last year in spots where you would have thought Josh Uche made sense to be on the field and Josh Uche just wasn't out there. And so, he, you know, I don't know, maybe you point to that being a coaching issue. Maybe you point to that, what you guys are talking about. Maybe they saw something in him that they didn't necessarily uh, trust him in all those spots and um we even saw at the senior bowl you know the lions coaching staff down there used him uh in some spots and practices as an off-ball guy just playing in the middle of the field and trying to get a, a sense of what he can be at the next level like you're saying so i think that uh those questions seem to hold up from what <laughs> what i've seen on this end uh, you you do you have any of those issues dane 
Uh, yeah, no, I know. I, I agree with a lot of what Lance said. And I, I mean, Uche is that speed off the edge. I think we'd be talking a lot more about Uche if he had a chance to work out at the combine. Unfortunately, he didn't. Yeah. I mean, he would have put up some really good numbers. But at 6'1", 245, I mean, I, I agree with what Lance said. Can he hold up against the run on early downs? You know, what's his permanent position? So I definitely think there are question marks there. Uh, Lance, last question from me. And I appreciate you for being so generous with your time. Thursday night, after it's all said and done, who's going to be the Rashad Penny? Who's going to be the one name where you just look back and say, wow, did not see him sneaking into the first round, but here we are. Uh, he was one of the first 32 picks. You know, I think Clyde Edwards-Alaire has a chance to be that guy. It's really interesting to see how every running back coach likes, that I spoke with, frankly, every team I spoke with likes DeAndre Swift number one. So let's say DeAndre Swift goes number one. What I think is going to be interesting is if a team takes a look at Clyde Edwards-Alaire and says he can return kicks early, he can, he doesn't have a lot of tread off the tires, he is an explosive running back with almost forty-inch vertical leap. We don't, you know, the four-six forty doesn't matter. He's super quick, um, and he's tough to deal with out of the backfield. He's a versatile weapon who had great interviews. Teams really, really liked him. And if a team looks at Clyde Edwards-Alaire and says, you know what, let's add him and let's keep him for five years. Let's take advantage of this rookie contract and let's get him when he's in his prime. Because I know the analytics crowd really hates running back early, but the difference is when you get a really great running back and you get him early in his career and he's a versatile running back who can play on three downs and you get him with club control for a cheap number and he's at his optimal in terms of his odometer, that's that's really that ends up actually being very good value. And so I think he's a guy to really keep your eye on as a sneaky leap into the first round as the second running back off the board. More and more, I'm beginning to think it's going to go Swift and Edwards-Alaire ahead of Taylor or Akers or Dobbins. That'd be that'd be fascinating. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun because, I mean, all these running backs are talented, but kind of like the tackles, kind of like the receivers. I, I don't think that there's necessarily consensus when you when you talk about what the different skills that they offer and what they could do. And it's going to be interesting for some of these teams in that late first, looking at Seattle, looking at Kansas City, looking at San Francisco, uh, who might be tempted to take a running back at that point. If they can't get out of there and trade out of the back half of round one, uh, they're going to be tempted to take a running back. So things could get interesting there with those final five or six picks in the first round. I'll give you one more name also. Keep an eye on uh, Jordan Brooks from Texas Tech. There's some teams that yep. really like Brooks as well. And because it's so light at inside linebacker, once Murray's gone, once Queen's gone, you may see uh, a push up the board for Jordan Brooks from Texas Tech. Yeah, a good player, rangy player. I, mean, I think his I think his agent uh, guaranteed it on Twitter. So uh, he, he – he did, and I, <laughs> I, I didn't take it very seriously. And then I dug around, and I was told, no, he should go somewhere between 35 and 45. So if you might go at 35, then, you know, maybe you go at 30, you know, 32, 31, 30 if a team wants to trade in. Just before we get out of here, Dane, do you have anyone? I mean, I'm kind of looking at these safeties and wondering if once Simmons right. is gone, if uh, if people are looking at him as a safety linebacker. So one of these other guys that we've been talking, you know, Jeremy Chin or – 
uh, Ashton Davis or one of these other playmaking safeties might sneak in there. Is there someone that jumps out to you as a sleeper for that first round? Uh, Chin is who, is who I was thinking of um, because, you know, you look at what he offers and as long as you get past the decal on the helmet, uh, you're looking at a guy that's 6'3", 220 and has 4'4 speed, ha- really productive, had at least three picks each of the last four years. So tape, testing uh you know the the interviews have been okay uh so I, I think that there's a lot going for chin that could possibly sneak him into one of those final four or five picks and then at the running back position i kind of for a lot of the same reasons that uh you know lance said edwards alaire i wouldn't su- surprise me if jonathan taylor were, were to sneak in there or jk dobbins I mean, all all these running backs are really interesting because they offer something a little different and they're really all for, i mean 15 years ago, they're probably all first-round picks. Uh, this era of NFL is a little different. And so some teams in the early second are going to get terrific value. But it wouldn't surprise me if we end up seeing uh, you know, some surprise at running back in that late first. All right. Well, uh, a huge thanks to Lance Zerline for being with us here. Uh, again, you can get him at Lance Zerline on Twitter, or you can head over to NFL.com, check out all those profiles, all the grades, the draft trackers up and running, tons of stuff. Over there, uh, I'll mention one last time, uh, Dane's draft guide on theathletic.com. You can only access it as a subscriber. So head over. We're still running a 90 day, uh, free trial. Go to theathletic.com and you can check that out. If you haven't subscribed yet, uh, you get a password and, and pull up Dane, the beast Dane's draft guide as soon as you subscribe. So make sure you do that before Thursday night. And, uh, we'll be back with you a couple times this weekend. Excited to get into it. Looking forward to it. Lance, thanks so much for doing this. All right. Thanks, guys. And that'll wrap us up. So for uh, Kent Garrison, our producer, and for Dane Brugler, I'm Chris Burke. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you in a couple days. 